This past weekend, this past Saturday, was actually my 47th birthday. Pretty good, huh? 47. And um, thank you. It, it, was, uh, it was a great weekend. It was a special weekend to celebrate my birthday because my kids were actually out of town. They were, uh, they were on the high school uh, youth retreat last weekend. So my wife and I had the whole weekend to ourselves. And, uh, you know, it was just awesome. I mean, I woke up Saturday morning on my birthday and, uh, you know, had a nice cup of coffee. I sat in my lounge chair and I was just, you know, in peace, drinking coffee, reading a book. It was just a perfect start to the morning. And then, uh, you know, last week was a beautiful weekend, and so I figured, okay, this will be a great opportunity to do some yard work, and uh, so I spent my, uh, my early part of the day uh, out in my yard doing yard work, and then I was all excited because in the evening, my wife and I, were, we were going to go out and uh, celebrate my birthday. We were going to go to the mall, do some shopping, and then go to one of our favorite restaurants for dinner, and so I had this great evening to look forward to, and again, no kids around. It was just perfect. Well... After enjoying my coffee for a couple hours that morning and reading a book, I decided I better get to work. So I go outside and uh, I start, you know, my yard is just covered with leaves. I got leaves everywhere. I'm sure you guys can relate, you know, this season here in Minnesota. And uh, they're blowing all over and I'm sure my neighbors were getting upset with me. So I figured I better clean up my leaves. So I'm out there for at least two, three hours raking leaves, blowing leaves, mulching leaves, picking leaves up. And after a whole morning, late after early afternoon of working out in the yard, I was literally drenched in sweat, wearing these dirty, stinky, smelly clothes, caked in dust. I'm not kidding you. Like, if you would have, like, rubbed your finger down my cheek, it would have, like, left a smear stain. I was just caked in leaf dust from head to toe. My clothes were covered in dirt and dust. I was filthy. I was grimy. And I obviously needed to clean myself up before I was going out on my big date with my wife later in the evening. So I get done doing all my yard work. I go inside. I literally like walked in my door. I stripped all my clothes off. I didn't even bother trying to trudge through the house and uh, took all my clothes off, went right to the shower. I'm in the shower scrubbing myself clean. I mean, the, the water is literally running brown, dirty with all the dust that was caked on my body. And uh, I get myself all cleaned up. I spend the next half hour, you know, grooming myself, getting ready for my date. I'm shaving. I'm doing my hair. Um, it, I mean, you know, everything that I wanted to do to get ready for my big date with my wife. Now, after getting myself all set up and I was fully groomed, I had the head buffed, I was good to go, right? At this point, what am I going to do when it comes time to get dressed? What do you think am I going to do? Am I going to go back to the hamper where I just threw all those dirty, stinky, smelly clothes and pull out those dirty, wet, damp clothes that I was wearing all morning out in the yard doing work? Am I going to pull those out of the hamper and put those on or am I going to go to my closet and go to the hangers and get some freshly cleaned, you know, hopefully nice looking clothes for my big date with my wife? Well, friends, obviously you know what I did, right? It would be absurd of me to go to the hamper and pull out the old dirty clothes and put those on again. No way. I'm not going back to the hamper. I went to the hangers and I got a fresh set of clothes, because I wanted to, to dress myself appropriately for my big night out with my wife celebrating my birthday. There's no way I was going to go back to those dirty, smelly clothes. But sadly, this is exactly what many Christians do after having been cleansed by Jesus Christ. 
after having experienced the, the forgiveness of sin and the rebirth that Pastor Stephen talked about last week, the new life that is ours in Jesus, the new identity we have in Christ. Sadly, instead of clothing ourselves appropriately for who we are in Christ, many of us are quick to return to the old dirty, stinky, smelly clothes that characterized our old life, our former life before we came to Christ. We put on those worldly garments once again, those dirty, stinky, polluted garments that, that Jesus says, look at, leave those behind. Keep them in the hamper. It's time for dressing yourself in light of your new identity in Jesus Christ. You know, maybe some of you here this morning can relate to that reality. Maybe some of you know what it is to put your faith and trust in Jesus and to experience new life in Jesus, but sometimes you go back to the hamper and you pull out those old clothes, those old clothes that characterized your old life before Jesus. Maybe even some of you here this morning are wearing some of those dirty, stinky clothes. Maybe the people around you can smell them. Right? If that's where you are this morning, friends, the Apostle Paul has a word of encouragement for you. The Apostle Paul has a word of counsel for you. Today, Paul is going to encourage us to live in light of our new identity in Jesus. He's going to encourage us to clothe ourselves in Christ. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, well Paul shares with us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, what it means to dress ourselves in light of our new identity in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at our passage this morning. I'm going to read it for us, and you can follow along on the screens or in your own Bibles. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5. Again, picking up where Pastor Stephen left off last week, our new life in Christ, our new identity in Christ. Now, what does that mean practically? How do we live this out? How do we dress ourselves in light of who we are in Jesus? Paul starts in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore. Remember, whenever you see the therefore, wherefore art thou therefore, therefore, right? Put to death. Why? Because you have a new life in Jesus. All right? So Paul starts out, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Because, again, you have new life in Jesus. So what are these things that we're to put to death? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What an awesome passage. Here, here in these verses, Paul tells us what it looks like to live in light of our new identity in Jesus. And specifically, Paul tells us how we should clothe ourselves as a result of this new identity that we've experienced in Jesus. What, what does it look like to live this out practically? What does it mean to be clothed in Christ? Well, Paul tells us, he starts out, he says, number one, to be clothed in Christ is to put to death our worldly passions. We put to death our worldly passions. Here in verses 5 through 7, Paul begins his instructions for us in this passage by addressing the topic of sexual sin. And here he uses some of the starkest language in all of Scripture. When it comes to these sexual sins, he says we need to put them to death. Put it to death, he says. In other words, we need to kill it. We need to put it down. Now, why is sexual sin such a big deal to God? Let me suggest four reasons that we discern from Scripture. Why are sexual sins in particular such a significant issue? Number one, it's because sexual sin is a perversion of God's oldest institution, the marriage relationship. All the way back at the very beginning of creation, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God had ordained his plan for human sexuality. It was to be experienced in a lifelong committed marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That was God's plan. And any other form of sexual expression outside of God's original plan and design is a perversion of this oldest institution that God had ordained. It, it, it's significant because, number two, it makes a mockery of what marriage is meant to reflect. What, what is marriage meant to reflect? Paul tells us in other areas of the New Testament that marriage is a reflection of God's covenantal relationship with his church. And just like God has covenanted with us, his bride, the church, through Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, marriage, human marriage, is a reflection of God's salvation plan for his church. It, it, sexual sin's a serious thing, number three, because it defiles the body of the one who's engaged in it. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul says, all other sins are outside the body, but the man who sins sexually sins against his own body and therefore makes himself impure in the eyes of our holy creator God. This is serious. And fourthly, sexual sin is serious because, as we see later in our passage this morning, Paul tells us it's a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for all these reasons, God says to us through the Apostle Paul that we need to put it to death. We need to kill it. No mercy. 
You know, it's interesting here in Minnesota and Wisconsin, it's deer hunting season. I got a bunch of buddies actually right now, this very moment, probably sitting up in tree stands looking to kill a deer. Your husband, Pastor Barry, up north, he's trying to kill a deer this morning. Now, for those of you who have ever been deer hunting, you know, like, what is the goal? When you go out into the woods and you find your blind or your deer stand that you're sitting in, right? Like, you're not out there to play patty cake with the deer, right? This isn't about, like, a game of tag. No, you're trying to put a rifle shot through their chest. You're trying to kill that thing. You're trying to put it down. That's what Paul's talking about. When it comes to our sin, he says, kill it. Put it to death. You know, the problem with us when it comes to our sin is instead of hunting our sin, instead of being hunters, we too often act like zookeepers. Am I right? Instead of killing our sin like the Bible tells us to do, we try to cage our sin. We we try to cage our sin and and we think we can control it. We think we can kind of lock it up and, and we don't put it to death. We just try to cage it. We act like zookeepers with our sin. But here's the problem. When we just cage our sin, it's always over there. And the temptation is to go and, and toy with it and to play with it and to feed it. Right? Paul says, look it, you're not a zookeeper when it comes to sin. You're a hunter. Kill it. Put it down. Put it to death. Don't cage your sin. Kill it. And remember, friends, when we set out to hunt these sins, it's important that we remember we don't hunt alone. And we don't hunt under just our own power. See, see, this is a mistake. This isn't about the legalistic rule-keeping that we talked about a few weeks ago, right? The, the, the false teachers in Colossae had created all these rules that the Christians needed to keep. This isn't a legalistic thing. No, this is about living in light of our new identity in Christ and allowing his transforming power to work through us as we set about killing our sin. It's like Paul talks about in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, what's Paul saying there? Paul's saying, look it, you got to go hunt your sin. But understand, as you set out to hunt your sin, you don't hunt alone. You hunt in the power of God who is at work through you. All right? Yeah, praise the Lord for that, right? Because here's the problem. If we set out to hunt our sin in our own power, never going to happen. You can't kill sin that way. But if you go out and set about hunting your sin in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's where victory can be found. That's where freedom can be found. Okay? So we have a role to play. We have to get up off the couch. We have to set out hunting our sin. But we also need to recognize that we don't hunt in our own power. We hunt in the power of God at work through us. Now what are these sexual sins that Paul calls us to put to death here? Look again at verse 5. Paul lists a number of items that he says we need to kill, that we need to put to death. He starts out with sexual immorality. The the word sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia. 
And it's an interesting word because porneia refers to all forms of illicit sexual activity outside of God's original boundaries for sex between one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship. So every other form of sexuality is covered by this Greek term porneia. This this would cover fornication. It would cover adultery, incest, bestiality, homosexuality. You go through the list. Any kind of sexual expression outside of God's Genesis 1, Genesis 2 plan for marriage is covered by porneia. Paul says put it to death. Put it all to death. Kill it very interesting in our culture today there's an argument that you'll often hear when it comes to the the topic of homosexuality Uh, especially those who are trying to argue that that God's okay with with people being homosexuals as long as they're in a monogamous committed homosexual relationship the argument goes like this well you know you read the gospels Jesus never once talks about homosexuality never once did you know that Jesus never mentions homosexuality anywhere. So why are you Christians so hung up about homosexuals? That's how the argument goes. Now, friends, here's the reality. Jesus never did talk about homosexuality specifically. But Jesus did, in a number of places, condemn porneia. And again, porneia in the Greek refers to all forms of illicit sexuality outside of God's boundaries for marriage between one man and one woman. Okay, so understand that if you ever hear that argument, I've heard it many times on social media, on news talk shows, right? Jesus never talked about homosexuality. No, but he did specifically condemn porneia, which includes homosexuality and every other form of deviant sexuality known to man outside of God's creation boundaries. And remember, friends, God has every right to set these boundaries. Why? Because he's our creator. He's the creator, your creation. All right? Now, you don't have to like the boundaries he sets, but what you want or what you wish for or what you like is completely irrelevant because you're not God. He's God. He sets the rules. He sets the boundaries. So Paul goes on, he lists sexual immorality. He goes on, he lists impurity. What's impurity? Impurity is moral corruption or insensitivity. It's when you get to that place where you're so corrupted by your sin that sexual issues no longer even concern you. You become numb to them, insensitive insensitive to them. Passion refers to sexual lust. Evil desire refers to wanting to what is sexually vile covetousness or greed in some translations greed can be covetousness or greed for a lot of things but here it's specifically related to greed for sexual pleasure it's the relentless urge to satisfy your sexual desires and notice what paul says at the end of this list he says that all of these forms of sexual sin are idolatry they're all idolatry why Because every single one of these sins is about seeking fulfillment in selfish pleasure rather than in God's selfless love. Friends, do you understand that? Anytime we seek fulfillment in life in anything else besides our creator God, it's idolatry. And particularly in the area of sexuality, when we seek self-centered pleasure instead of God's selfless love, Paul says, look it, You're committing idolatry in that. And I want you to think about this. Friends, are there any sins more prominent in our culture today than these? 
I mean, these are the, these are the top of the list of the sins our culture wrestles with. We have a culture today swimming in idolatry. And the Bible says, no, you got to kill this stuff. you got to put it to death. If you're a follower of Jesus especially, if you're somebody who has experienced new life in Christ, don't clothe yourselves in these old stinky garments of all these sexual sins which, is, which are idolatrous. No, put them to death. Kill them. Live in light of who you are in Jesus. And again, notice how seriously God takes these sins. Take a look at verse 6. What does God say? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's going to judge the world because of these sins. His wrath is coming because of these sins. Now, we live in a culture today where people don't like to hear about God's judgment. Even in a lot of churches, you won't hear a lot of talk about God's wrath against sin. His judgment against sin, right? Like, what's our culture say? Oh, come on, you know? I mean, God is love. And God wouldn't judge me, right? Like, love is love, right? I mean, as long as I'm loving somebody, that's, that's all that God really cares about. That, that's the popular idea in our culture today. But friends, the reality is, God does act in judgment against sin. And his judgment is just. A few years ago, I was counseling a young man who was caught up in sexual sin, unrepentant sexual sin. He was sleeping with his girlfriend. And I said, look, you, got, you, got to, you can't do that. You, you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You got to kill that sin. You can't be sleeping with your girlfriend outside of marriage. He said, oh, come on. I mean, what, what's the big deal? I mean, we love each other. Hey, we're probably going to get married someday. Right? Like that's what, that was his argument. And, and here's the reality. I, I was trying to explain to him why this was sinful, why this was rebellion against God. And, and it was interesting because as I was talking to him, the Holy Spirit put this thought into my head. This young man I was talking to, he was a basketball coach. And so I said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. What if you had a player on your team who consistently traveled with the basketball? You know what traveling is? It's, it's when you've got the ball, and instead of dribbling, you take more than two steps with the ball. Like you're running around with the ball. You can't do that in basketball. You've got to dribble, right? And I said, what if you had a player on your team who was consistently traveling with the basketball? What would you do? He said, well, I, I'd have to bench him. I said, well, why? He says, because that's not how the game was designed to be played. He's breaking the rules. I said, oh. And I want on to explain to him, like, friends, you need to understand as well this morning, the reality is this is the same way that our sin works in the eyes of God. And it's why our sin deserves judgment. It's because sin is rebellion against the rules and design of our creator. And God's righteousness will not turn a blind eye to our rebellion. And so when we sin, there are consequences. We will face God's justice. But here's the good news for us this morning. If you find yourself today living outside of God's boundaries, if you've been breaking the rules, if you've been living outside of God's will and plan for your life today in the area of sexuality, you don't have to face God's wrath because Jesus has taken God's judgment for you. And if you'll simply put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning and turn to him in a spirit of repentance, Jesus 
will transform your life. And you too can know his amazing grace. The Apostle John in 1 John 1, 9, he, he explains it like this. He says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he'll forgive us of our sins. And he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friends, does that sound like good news to you this morning? That truth applies to each and every person here. It applies to everybody watching online today. If you've been living your life outside of God's boundaries, if you turn to Jesus in a spirit of repentance, he'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you of your sin. He'll set you on a path to new life. And what's even more, God tells us he doesn't just cleanse our sins, but he turns us into a whole new person. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Isn't that awesome? In Jesus, friends, we have the opportunity to literally become new people, a new creation, forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our unrighteousness, set on a path that leads to life and life to the full through our new identity in Jesus. So Paul says, look it, you gotta kill off these worldly passions. The second thing Paul tells us in our passage this morning in verses eight through 11, he says, look at if you're clothed in Christ, you need to put off your worldly practices. What does that mean? Well, the previous list of sins we just looked at talked about our sexual vices. But here in verses 8 through 11, Paul moves on to addressing sins that have wider social implications. Sins that poison our relationships with others. Sins that create conflict and division within community, especially within the body of Christ. And here in verses 8 through 11, Paul switches metaphors from hunting our sin to using a metaphor. He talks about putting them all away or putting them off. These are terms in the Greek that, that refer to stripping ourselves of dirty garments. Take all that dirty clothing off, Paul says. Strip yourself of those dirty garments, right? Start walking and living in your new identity. Live in light of who you are in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we need to strip off these attitudes and behaviors that can damage our relationships with others. What is he talking about here? He, he mentions a few things. He mentions, number one, anger. Anger is a festering attitude of hatred. It, it's pent-up animosity towards another person. Friends, this is dangerous business. This is like boiling water in a teapot. That's what anger is. You might have it under control for a while. But that anger begins to seethe, it begins to boil, and then that anger leads to wrath. Paul mentions wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is anger boiling over into action. This is the, the person who has a quick temper, the person who just, boom, is on a hair trigger, and you set them off. It's a person who evidences a lack of self-control in their life. Paul then mentions malice. Malice is evil intentions towards another person or rejoicing in another person's misery. Friends, have you ever been guilty of that? Malice? Paul says, take it off. Strip yourself of that. He then, he then moves on to mention slander. Slander is abusive speech that defames another person's character. 
You want to see an example of slander? Just go watch some of your TV commercials here this afternoon. You're going to see all kinds of political ads from both parties full of slander, right? Defaming another person's character. God says, take it off. We should have no business in that as God's people. He moves on. He talks about obscene talk, foul language, crude talk, swearing. This is, this is a piece of dirty clothing that I used to struggle with when I was a young man. When I was a teenager, college student, I, I, I used bad language. And it was something that the Holy Spirit needed to do a work in my heart and transform that area of my life. I had to strip that off. Praise the Lord, he's done a work in that area of my life. But friends, if that's something you struggle with, you need to take it off. You need to strip that off. You need to walk in light of who you are in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, he talks about not lying to one another. Why is lying a big deal? Friends, lying is a sin against God and against our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's serious business. It's serious business because remember, in John 14, 6, we learn that Jesus is literally the truth. And if we are now united with Christ, if we have a new identity in Christ, if we are to strip ourselves of our old self and walk in light of our new self, we need to live in light of who Jesus is. He is the truth. And so lying shouldn't have any place amongst God's people. We need to be people <clears throat> who live in light of the truth, not in, not, not, in, not in hypocrisy. Remember, lying was such a serious sin even in the early church, in the book of Acts, we see the example of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to God, who lied to their church. And God struck them down dead. Serious business, friends. These things are serious to the Lord. Why? Why does God care so much about these sins? Friends, understand, these sins are serious business because they all reveal a deeper heart issue going on inside of you. If you're struggling with these kinds of sin in your life, understand that this isn't just about the outward actions and attitudes. This is about something that's deeper going on in your heart. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 about this idea. In verses 34 through 7, 37, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What is Jesus talking about? He, it's not so much about the words, it's about the heart that leads to the words. And the evidence of your justification, whether you're right in the eyes of God, is that the Holy Spirit is going to transform even your language. But it's ultimately a matter of the heart. Friends, if you see your life characterized by any of these sins that we just talked about, if others around you say, man, my, my husband has a problem with this area, my wife has a problem with it, my kids have a problem with this area, I have a problem with this area, right? Whether, whether it's anger or wrath or malice or slander or obscene talk or lying, if you've got a problem in this area, friends, that reveals that there's something still in your heart that's corrupt. And no self-help book is gonna fix that. No counseling session is gonna fix that. The only thing that's going to fix that is by yielding yourself to Jesus and humbling yourself before him and asking the Holy Spirit to do a work of transformation within you. 
You put it off, and then you trust God to transform your heart. That's, that's how change begins to happen for us when we grow in Christ. Paul goes on and he adds one more matter we need to put off in order to protect our relationships with others. He talks about the reality of prejudicial attitudes. Look at verse 11 in our passage. Paul says here, speaking of the church, speaking of our life in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now friends, when we put on the new self, living in our identity in Christ, one of the most powerful evidences of this will be the radical transformation that it brings, breaking down the old worldly barriers that so often divide people. Here Paul highlights racial barriers, Greeks and Jews. He highlights religious barriers, circumcised, uncircumcised, cultural barriers, barbarian, Scythian, social barriers, slaves, free. Paul says all these are stripped away as we put on our new self, our new identity rooted in Jesus Christ. You know, it's really interesting. Our culture today is fascinated with the whole idea of identities, isn't it? I mean, and it seems like we're creating new identities out of thin air on a daily basis, right? Like, you, you watch the news, you read the magazines, you read the social media, we got racial identities, we got ethnic identities, we got sexual identities, we got political identities, we got gender identities, we got hundreds of those, right? Like, it's just like our culture is creating all of these identities, and our culture doesn't just create these identities, our culture tells us that we need to celebrate all of these various identities, but friends, let me ask you a question. Have you noticed that the more identities our culture creates and tells us to celebrate, the more divided our culture becomes? Have you noticed that? Why is that? The answer is this. It's because we're sinners. And our unrepentant, prideful hearts can never truly celebrate diversity. See, pride always elevates the self over other people. And so pride, instead of bringing unity from diversity, always leads to greater division. Every time. The beauty of Christianity, however, is that in Christ, all people in all their diversity can find true unity through the transforming power of the gospel. See, all of us, friends, no matter your background, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, every single person here is equal at the foot of the cross. Every single person can experience transformation through Jesus. And that's why Paul says, the religious barriers are gone. The social barriers are gone. The political barriers are gone. All of these things that the world care, cares so much about, these things are stripped away in light of the unity that we find as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It's one of the most beautiful realities of the church, friends. In fact, it's one of the oldest apologetic arguments for the power of the gospel. 
going back all the way to, to the second century, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, one of the first apologists of the church, giving a defense of the faith, wrote a great document called Apology. He wrote it to the Roman emperor, and in his apology, one of his primary arguments for the power of the church and the truth of Christianity and the power of Jesus Christ, one of his arguments was, see how these Christians love one another. Because that was foreign in the Roman culture of the second century. Culture was divided, and there were all these different identities that people, you know, camps they identified with. But it was the church that brought people together. It was the gospel that led people to love one another. It was their identity in Jesus that brought true transformation. See how these Christians love one another. So Paul says, look, you've got to put off all of these worldly passions, all of these worldly practices. But then look at what he tells us next. He says, to be clothed in Christ is to put on his virtues. Verses 12 through 14. Let me read this for us. Put on then, right? So we've taken off all this dirty clothing. What are we supposed to wear instead? Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Friends, what's the wardrobe of the saints? It's right here. This is what we're supposed to put on, right? We open the closet, we pull out some kindness, we pull out some humility, we take some love off the, off the hangers, right? And he goes on, he says, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Friends, let me ask you a question. Who does this all sound like? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, love. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Paul is saying here, friends, look at what are you supposed to dress up as? You're supposed to dress up as Jesus Christ. You want to know what it looks like to, to clothe yourself as a follower of Jesus? You clothe yourself in the kinds of stuff that he wore. Compassionate hearts, kindness, gentleness, meekness forgiveness, love. This is the clothing that we're supposed to dress ourselves with. I, re I remember, you know, years ago, you remember used to, we used to get catalogs in the mail, right, for clothing companies. Remember? We don't get a lot of catalogs in the mail anymore, right? It's all like social media Instagram influencers now, right? Like my daughter has all these Instagram influencers she follows, right? But, but back in the day, we would get catalogs in the mail, I remember in college, you know, back, you know, when I was in college, the, the catalog that we all looked forward to getting was Abercrombie and Fitch, right? That, like, that was the cool clothes when I was in college, was Abercrombie and Fitch. And if you remember, you'd flip through the catalog, and the catalog was selling products, but more than products, what were they selling? They were selling an image, weren't they? And you'd look at the pages and the pictures, and it was all these, you know, really cool buff guys, and they're on these, you know, wilderness, out, out, outward bound adventures, and of course, there's all these beautiful girls hanging out with them, and it's like, man, I, like, I want to be that dude. I'm going to buy that shirt, right? <laughs> and it wasn't about the shirt. It was about the image that they were selling. And it was the image that led us to desire the product, but understand this, friends, it works the same way spiritually with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 2 says, 
be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? It means that as we look at Jesus and as we look to the gospel and as we remind ourselves of who he is and the way he lived and the way he dressed, we become increasingly compelled to want that, to desire that, because that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. We want the truth. We want that reality. We want to be that kind of person. And so the more I look at Jesus, the more I desire Jesus, the more I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a person whose life is characterized by things like love and forgiveness and compassion, right? I, I want to be that kind of a person. Friends, is that your heart's desire too? Like, do you want to be that kind of person or do you want to be the kind of person who's still walking around in your old stinky laundry? No, right? We put that off. And we put on the attributes of Jesus Christ. Friends, think about this. What a difference it makes when we clothe ourselves in Christ. It makes all the difference in the world. You know, Tuesday, we have an election coming up here in our country. There's a lot of people putting their hope in this election to change the direction of our country. But friends, I want to remind you, there's only one thing that will truly change the direction of our country, and that's a spiritual transformation. It's God doing a work of revival in people's hearts. You know, the, the Apostle Paul, the Roman Empire he was writing to, not too long after he wrote this book of Colossians, the Roman Empire fell. It collapsed. And it's very interesting, you study the fall of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire fell for many of the very same reasons America is struggling today. You can go down the list. But a thousand years later, that very same area of Western Europe was transformed. A reformation happened. A revival took place as people put their hearts focused back on the pure truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they began to believe God's word again and trust God's word and submit their lives to God's word. They began to clothe themselves in Christ, and it brought about a revival in Western culture, the likes of which the world has never seen before, a renaissance. It was the power of the gospel that did that. And friends, it's the same gospel that is the hope of our culture today. As Christians, we need to be involved in the, the election process, right? Go out and vote. But also understand our true hope, the true hope for this world is Jesus Christ. It's seeing our culture increasingly strip ourselves of the worldly garments and put on the clothes of Christ. That's where hope is found, friends. And so our job as Jesus' ambassadors in this world is to share the good news of the gospel. That change is possible. That transformation is available. That we can set our lives on a whole new course. And it's not by following the right political party. It's by following the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this powerful passage and all that Paul shares to encourage us in our new identity with you as followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that you would convict each of us this morning of those areas in our lives that we need to, that we need to put to death, that we need to strip off. And may we increasingly clothe ourselves in your likeness. 
with those characteristics and those qualities that, that you exemplified so perfectly, Lord, to show us a model, to show us the way. Lord, help us to, to walk in light of our identity as your people. And in walking in light of our new identity, dressed in the clothes of Christ, Lord, help us to have a savoring, seasoning, light-giving influence in the world around us. Help us to show our culture a better way, Lord. Help us not only to show that way, but help us to bear testimony to the, the powerful truth that transformation is possible in all of our lives when we confess our sins and humble ourselves before Jesus. And he can do a new work in each and every one of us. Lord, we know you're the only hope of this world. And so, Jesus, we pray that we would continue to pursue you faithfully, that we would live as your ambassadors, testifying to the good news of the gospel, and that through that, God, more hearts, more lives would be changed and transformed, and that we would once again see a revival, a new renaissance in our culture as people humble themselves at the foot of the cross and confess Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, if you would, please stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from the letter of 2 John, verse 3. And now may grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. God bless you, friends, and have a great week. Amen.